What's up to my favorite people in the world? That's right. It's all of you listeners of the City Champions Podcast, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Now, this particular City of Champions episode is brought to you by Unit B Coworking. Unit B is a multi-company co-working space focused on helping people pursue their passions and making Edmonton its creative best. Join a tight-knit group of freelancers, startups, and established organizations, which are all dedicated to getting things done. Now, besides desks and offices, Unit B offers members access to its podcasting studio, hello, and meeting spaces, as well as a kitchen, Wi-Fi, and the usual amenities, uh, which is massive because if you're anything like me, you know working from home can be a little bit isolating and sometimes you just need to shake things up a bit. It's located in the historic McKenney building on 104th Street, close to everything downtown, including the Bay LRT station. So book a tour today at unitb.ca. Okay, and now, it is my genuine pleasure to introduce my guest for today. Now, he's someone I'm extremely excited about because I've wanted to have him on the show for about a year and a half now. Um, But not only that, it's also because he's utterly fascinating, charmingly well-spoken, he's tremendously thoughtful, and a complete and total badass. His name is Laval St. Germain, and he's an airline pilot by profession and an adventure artist by passion. Now, I don't know if that's a real title, but I had to make up something to encapsulate all the names of his pursuits because there are many, but a few of them include mountaineer, endurance athlete, and ocean rower. Basically, Laval does things that most of us would never dream of doing, nor even think that we could do. Uh, But you'll find out in this conversation why he thinks that you're wrong and that you could do them. We dive into the specifics of most of his adventures, but as a teaser highlight reel, I'll share some of them with you, which include summoning the highest peaks on all seven continents, completing the fastest ever crossing of the North Atlantic Ocean by solo rowboat from mainland North America to mainland Europe, and being the only Canadian and one of only around 200 people in all of history to summit Everest without oxygen. Laval is basically the Terminator, or at least you'd think so until you hear and see how lovingly he talks about his wonderful family. A guy like this deserves all the introduction in the world, but I'd much rather you hear from the man himself. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Laval Saint-Germain. Laval, thanks for joining me today. Thanks Um, for having me, Shane. Yeah, my pleasure. You're my favorite type of guest, a a guy that I've been after for, we were just talking before we started recording, a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that it has been this long because had I got you a year and a half ago, you wouldn't you wouldn't have then been the holder of the summit, Seven Summit title. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So you yeah. got to tell us a little bit about this and, and how that got started. <clears throat> yeah, so the Seven Summits, if people aren't familiar with them, Shane, it's the um, highest peak on all seven continents. So we've got North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, um, and Australasia. Australasia being New Zealand, Australia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia. We group them all together because the highest mountain in um, Australia, which is its own continent, is only is Mount Kosciuszko. It's pretty low. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I just ran up in, in August, but I can't remember how high it is. It's, let's call it uh, three to 5,000 feet, if I remember right. So we, uh, as mountaineers, we sort of group them all together. And, and um, uh, interestingly, the first person who's who ever did the seven summits... 
was a Canadian, uh, originally from Kimberley, BC, but now he lives uh, north of that in the Columbia Valley. And um, um, Pat Morrow. And so he was a bit of a mentor of mine when I was growing up. And uh, he climbed the seven summits using the highest mountain in Australasia, which is called Karstens Pyramid. Um, whereas the first person who claims to climb it was an American named Dick Bass from Texas who climbed Kosciuszko in Australia and claimed he did it. But the, the, the moral list is the true seven summits. And a bit of a tangent, but uh, Pat Morrow has just hired me in May to do a speaking gig <laughs> at an event he's at. So it's kind of strange. It's come full circle. Come full circle. So how many people in the world would be a part of that club? I don't know. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably a couple hundred. I Very, don't know. Like yeah. hardly any. Well, that's quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you, you think of how many people are, are have lived and are living. Like, yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you're like the the you know infinitesimal small like top percentile. Yeah. So I uh, I completed uh, the last one, which is Antarctica. The mountain there is called uh, Mount Vinson. It's about sixteen thousand feet above sea level, so it's not that high. But I did that in uh, actually New Year's Eve, December thirty first, is when I did that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. But the, the crazy thing about that one is that you cross country skied in for was it like twelve days? Mm. No, it was a two-part expedition. I was skiing from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole. Okay. A bit of a long story there, but I had... Um, and then the second part of the expedition was flying to the base of Mount Vincent and climbing Vincent. Oh, okay. So the, the, the ski portion of the South Pole, I lasted 12 days because I had um, I had a Norwegian sled named... Uh, uh, the manufacturer's called Acapulco Sleds, and they sent me a sled to Chile. I'd already paid for it, and it showed up warped. Mm. I took photos of it, consulted with them emails back and forth and they said we can assure you it's going to pull straight mm. and as long as it was fully loaded it's a kevlar fiberglass uh type sled and as long as it was fully loaded it was flex straight but as i started to burn fuel and eat food as the trip as i progressed the 200k south um the warp came back and the sled wouldn't pull straight anymore i could do like three steps and it'd be off to the right like a water skier skiing behind a oh, boat yeah till it ground me to a halt mm -hmm. so i had to abandon that but i'm um I'm now I'm now suing the company to to reimburse me. For yeah, no sled. kidding. Yeah, because I mean, there's probably a lot of things you know resting on that trip. Like you, most of your trips, it seems like you do fundraising mm -hmm. for, and yeah. you take donations, and you probably yep. got sponsors that you need to have fulfillments to. Yep. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's just disappointing. But you know, the longer I do this, the, I do realize that um, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had that many uh, failures, but you know, part of success is it, when you play in this arena is you're going to fail and, and the failures can be a lot worse than a warp sled and abandoning mm -hmm. a, uh, solo ski to the South pole. So it's just part of, it's just part of being in this arena. You are going to fail at times. And I think a lot of success is due to a lot of failure. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, you're, you're on the, you're on the precipice of, of pushing the boundaries of human limits every mm -hmm. time you go out there because yes. you're tackling some of the most, most, intense challenges yeah 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 i am sort of stepping out of my comfort zone a lot yeah <laughs> when uh you know how what kind of brought you to this as a younger man or a boy even like yeah. what kind of got you into the the outdoorsy sort of challenging yourself pushing uh, the boundaries? pretty simple we uh, i grew up in a small town north of st albert called mournville mm -hmm. and uh, my mom was from a farm just outside of mournville uh, about 10 kilometers away and um I spent a lot of time on the farm, on my grandparents' farm, uh, all summer. I'd be there every summer, and then uh, Christmas holidays as well. And I really um, chalk up my experience on the farm for um, a lot of my best learning experiences. You learn how to how to treat animals. You learn how to work hard. You learn how to be, you know, at the dinner table on time because your German grandmother's gonna, 
you know, make sure you are. Wash your hands before you eat dinner and how to treat machinery, which helps as a, as an airline pilot for sure, or as I became an airline pilot. Um, but I had parents who, my mom was really big into health and fitness and my dad was really big into reading. So we always had a load of books around the house. This is pre-internet days, pre-electronic media, pre-social media. And so you just read and we had a, we had a subscription to National Geographic. We had uh, like Farley Moat bo- uh, books laying around. We had Hemingway books laying around. So I was always reading and dreaming about these places. And um, my dad was an outdoorsman in the sense that uh, he would uh, he was a canoeer, he was a hunter and a fisherman. So I was in the outdoors a lot. And uh, growing up with National Geographic and that kind of influence, um, I just wanted to do this stuff. And, and I remember as a young boy, my dad seeing me re- read National Geographic and he said, you really want to go to all these places, don't you? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, why don't you become an airline pilot? Then you have the travel benefits to go anywhere in the world and do this stuff. And I said, oh, okay. Because he had his private pilot's license. And to make a long story short, it was reading and the inspiration I got from that and having parents that never said I couldn't do anything. Right. Do whatever you want. We'll support you if you want to do it. And um, yeah, I mean, a small town boy from Warrenville, Alberta. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I've been all over the world. And it's it's you know it's because of that. Because of parents who were like that. So did your earlier trips kind of start from, you piggyback them off where you would travel to as a pilot? Uh, no, not really. I um, It started uh, sort of the uh, ski mountaineering in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and then that turned into ski mountaineering in the uh, Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Because there's a bunch of fairly easy volcanoes. You can climb and ski down there. Mm-hmm. And you get fairly high. Um, Northern California, uh, Washington, Oregon, and then um, uh, f- you know once I got my travel passes, I was flying into Central America doing things like scuba diving, um, and then Bolivia mountaineering, and then you know eventually next thing you know you're you've, you've climbed the highest mountain in South America, and you're going well wait a minute maybe I'll go to Alaska, and it just it, it wasn't a I don't really think I set my sights on the seven summits because in between time I was doing other mountains, mm-hmm. the highest mountain in Mexico, highest mountain in Canada, highest mountain in Nunavut. Um, just, I, I just love um, going to foreign places and I love, I love getting up to the high points. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you tend to see the real country that way. You tend to see the real people. You're in the remote areas. And it's, uh, yeah, so I mean, um, it just evolved from uh, from basically ski mountaineering here in Alberta and renting Telemark skis at the University of Alberta Outdoor Center, and uh, you know just it it was a very organic process. It wasn't like I went and took a course and off I went. Mm-hmm. I just kind of taught myself and off I went. Lots so, of trial, lots of error. Something about being uh, raised in the prairies <laughs> makes you want to go the complete opposite and get yeah. up as high yeah. and, as mountainous as yeah. possible, right? I think the highest uh, point around Morinville was the berm that the railway was built on. <laughs> so it wasn't very high. So a, as a pilot, obviously, you, you're you you know beholden to a, a ton of checklists, which, mm. which keep you you know on you know on schedule, on time, safe. Um, did you immediately apply that kind of uh, focus on safety to your adventures or do you look back and yeah. say like I can't believe I I was this kind Well, I've of- had a lot of close calls in the past for sure but I think uh, I did but I didn't realize I was doing that at the time mm. but now for sure um, I use the same um, procedural uh, philosophy and risk management philosophy that I use in uh, flying and vice versa in um, uh, applying uh, what I've learned in the mountains and on the oceans to what I've what I do in the cockpit but um, what flying really does for me is it gives me a good awareness of things like weather, physics, 
physiology to some degree because of the training we get about high altitude stuff, but also just um, not taking any shortcuts. And uh, I just literally came from the simulator. I just did a, a three days of my annual RM. Every six months we do, we get tested in the simulator and, and trained. And um, what I don't ever want to have happen is me make a mistake in, in one of the great ranges of the world or on the ocean and end up dead. And um, in aviation, if you have a, an accident in Canada, there's what's called the Transportation Safety Bureau that does investigation. And there's a report that comes out. It's called mm -hmm. the TSB report. And it assigns blame and it assigns responsibility. Right. And it should, right, rightly so. And, and the vast majority of um, aviation accidents are caused by pilot error or human error. Mm -hmm. Just like the vast majority of uh, accidents in the backcountry are caused by human error or pilot error, if you want to put it that way. And I just don't want to report to say that I didn't check my knot. I didn't have my harness put on properly. I set up my tent in the wrong spot. I was uh, moving across crevasse terrain unroped. And that's why I got the, got mm -hmm. the chop. And I don't want my family to live with that literally as my... Uh, inscription on my tombstone type of thing so right. i really keep that in mind both flying and um as a uh, as an outdoors person so in a in a situation where say even <clears throat> if you're flying or if, or if you're out in the back country and would it be chalked up to user error if if the conditions stated that you shouldn't have gone forward and you still did would that be would the blame rest on you or would the blame be put on yeah there, the, there, there are the certain objective hazards that are just about impossible to protect mm. Or, or to avoid, uh, for example, I'm talking about in the uh, in the outdoors. So that would be uh, moving across terrain that you figured was safer. Uh, when I'm talking about avalanches, for example, and and the thing slides and and you get it. Um, those are not things that are are uh, completely um, uh, determinable. You have to. There is an objective hazard when doing this. Mm -hmm. um, just like if you step out of the tent at a high altitude. Without oxygen, you don't know if you're gonna if you've got the genetics to do it or not. You don't know if you're gonna live. So those are things that you'd never do in aviation. Right. So there is a there's a there's a there's a big divide there. I would never take chances like that in an airliner for mm -hmm. sure ever. We're so controlled. We don't there there basically is no objective hazard because of the fact that we prepare for everything. We've got weather reports, wind reports. We just don't do stuff like that. You don't mm -hmm. stick your neck out like that in aviation. But certainly as an as a as an outdoor athlete, you do. So different but similar. So obviously fitness is a huge part of, um, you know, enabling you to be able to do all these things. What's your, what's your average training regimen like <clears throat> day to day, week to week? Every day. Every day. Every day. What did you either, do today? Um, th this morning I was at the gym at 5.15 in the hotel you know, because I was in the simulator this morning. Yeah. And then, uh, so I won't get anything done other than the gym today, but I try and do gym and cardio every day. So I don't do cardio indoors. It'll either be a run or a bike ride. Yeah. So if I don't have a lot of time, I'll do like a really, um, yeah, like an anaerobic workout, like stairs, mm -hmm. like I did last night downtown here in Edmonton. Uh, and I'll mix it up with cycling and weights. So it's always, it's always that. And what it is, is it's, um, a lot of outdoor athletes are, um, are, uh, like real greyhounds, super lean, super skinny, but with no muscle at all. And I like the all around, um, idea because you're not only just trudging uphill with a pack on where you need to be all lungs but you may have to get your buddy out of a crevasse you may right. have to dig a snow pit you may have to uh, dig your buddy out of an avalanche um you, you're, you know you're lifting and twisting with sometimes with 100 pound backpacks to put on your back so if you're not trained uh you know musculature wise you're going to get injured and if you're injured especially if you do solo trips which i did do do um you're you know that could be it so. yeah I'd imagine that when you're training, 
the stakes for you are always going to be higher than the average person. Yeah. Like, like for me, I train. I don't have anything that I'm really particularly yeah. training for. Maybe the average bike ride, or yeah. you know, or, yeah. or, or just an obstacle fit. course, or just yeah. staying fit. But you, like, every time you train, you probably think like, like my life could depend on this training. Yeah, especially if a trip's coming up. But having said that, don't diminish the fact that you stay fit because what you're training for is life. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, by staying fit, by eating healthy, uh, by exercising, doing cardio, doing weights, that type of thing, you're training for something far more important. And that is a, a, a long uh, health span. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a lifespan, but a health span where you can go and not have that, you know, excuse the term, but circling the drain as you get older, right? For 10 years, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you live, you live with intent, you live healthy, and you've done the work so that you can, you can, you know, have the, the longest possible lifespan. But yeah, I mean, when I'm training for a particular thing, so um, uh, for example, uh, the ocean row, and I rode from Canada to France, I, I sort of started to focus, I didn't do any rowing inside, I can't stand indoor um, <laughs> cardio, so I did weights that, w- that would simulate the type of muscles I need for, for rowing. Right. But then on a trip of that length, you get kind of fit while you're out there in the water as well, but I needed the all-around fitness, so core, legs, arms, all that stuff. How strict are you with your diet? I'm strict, yeah. I, um, you know, one day a week, we'll sort of let ourselves eat what we want. And that for generally for my wife and I, that would mean carbs, like mm-hmm. some bread. Mm-hmm. But I try and stay away from carbs. Really? Well, yeah. So you're yeah, just unless, unless, high protein, fat diet all the time? Yeah, time? unless I'm on a, um, like I just did a 1200K bike ride up in the Arctic uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and for that one, I ate everything. I've, <laughs> I've tried to go keto on, on um, some... Um, sort of really high output activities mm-hmm. and it doesn't work for me so when i'm in a situation like for, for that one i was you know eight to eleven hours a day on a bike mm-hmm. from temperatures from minus 24 to plus eight and uh, i was eating like all the standard stuff you'd eat um you know 10 years ago when before everybody was on this low carb thing that was like chocolate bars snicker bars uh bread um i even had believe it or not which i never ever do i even had a pop what? Yeah. So, Where'd you even get a pop up? Somebody bring it with somebody you? stopped on the side of the road. They offered me bannock and ginger ale. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it depends where I am and what's going on. But yeah, you have to. Uh, you've got to have the right fuel for sure. Well, I guess biking's kind of different than a running or like even a cross country skiing or, or a hiking because you're not getting probably as uh, cramped as much because you're in a sitting yeah, you position. So either. just your legs are going nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, I read about your tri- your bike trip up north and. Um, it was really this cool. latest latest one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, so it was from uh, Yellowknife to I'm going to forget the name of the Norman town. Wells. Norman Wells, right? Yeah. It was really cool to read about how people would just stop and, yeah. and give you food and and help you out. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for Northerners for sure. <laughs> one of the coldest places in the world, yet some of the warmest yep, people. Absolutely, they can take the chill away just by how warm they are. And I mean, I. I I've ridden up there before. My the coldest temperature I've ever had doing anything has been minus forty six. That was one day as a kid growing up in Edmonton, minus forty six on Denali, North America's highest mountain, minus forty six, and then cycling once uh, up in the Yukon and the Northwest Territories in the winter time. But this trip it wasn't cold, like minus twenty four, minus twenty two. Like I said, was sort of the coldest temperatures. But I, you know, I came in uh, one night minus twenty into a little village called Bichoco. I just knocked on somebody's door, middle of the night, sweaty, ice like all over me, and. I said, listen, is there any place to stay? I had a tent, but generally in a village, you can find a place to stay. Mm-hmm. And this lady's talking on the phone. She's got two little kids are walking around, running around. She's on the phone with her neighbor, I guess. And she said, oh, my my friend Victoria says you can stay at her house. <laughs> so I wrote about five meters. <laughs> Not a question. Victoria hadn't even seen you. Waves me in, and there's her uh, four kids, her first cousin who lived there as well. And there's a mattress in the spare room. 
make yourself at home. So I mean, the <laughs> the hospitality up there is incredible. Yeah. How do you um, how do you keep track of all the people that you meet along the way? Well, I used to keep a uh, a paper journal. Mm-hmm. In this trip, I just started taking pictures and then using my phone, using the audio portion of my phone, like mm-hmm. I recorded, say this is who I met, and mm-hmm. and I would taking selfies with people that were helping me out. Yeah. And it's really funny to look back on that and for sure and see them. Yeah. Have you given thought to writing a book about all these experiences at some point? I think if I do something interesting, I will. There's a few more things I want to do. So, I mean, uh, I haven't had any. Um, I mean, I could, I could, I could, I could write about some of my outdoor experiences, and then obviously the tragedy of losing um, our oldest son uh, almost five years ago. But uh, both of those things aren't um, tremendously unique. Um, you know, maybe when I'm doing a retrospective, I could uh, consider doing something like that. But I still have so many things I want to do, and mm-hmm. um, I don't feel like I'm. I, I just don't think that I'm worthy to write a book yet. So. Right. Well, I, I'll add you to the list of um, people far more interesting than myself who have a Wikipedia page because I tried to get myself a page and they said, you're not interesting enough. Basically. Oh, yeah. And there's yeah. a long list now of people that I realize I got to do a lot more in life before I ever yeah. get to that point. Do I have a Wikipedia page? I don't think you no, do. No, I don't think I do. No, no. <laughs> so you're on that I, list of people like, done. okay, well, if Laval doesn't have one, I definitely don't deserve one. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's funny because you don't, seemingly do these things for the publicity like you, you raise awareness for the charities that you yeah. that you participate mm-hmm. in but you know it's not some big like hey look at me it's like it's hey uh, do you want to be a part of this it's hey uh touch wood i'm super fortunate to first of all have grown up where i grew up to have the ability to travel because of my career um have the financial ability to travel have a wife who is tremendously supportive and the health I'm just fortunate, and um, I really think life is super short. You really got to do this stuff. I mean, too many people live for 65. Too many people live for retirement. This mm-hmm. is what we're gonna do. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna get a place in Palm Springs. We're gonna golf, and that's all. They, you know, that's not something to aim for. I mean, my father-in-law turned 65, and uh, and he in June, and he or in the summer he retired. He was dead by January. Not a single really? health issue with him, and then all of a sudden he got cancer, and he was gone. And there's too many stories like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the guys I did a lot of hardcore adventuring with, he uh, died, uh, it'll be three years ago now, and um, marathoner, mountaineer, backcountry skier, ice climber, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he's gone. So he lived it up. He lived with intent, and uh, he has no regrets. And uh, I, I just think it's important that we, um, that we, you know, live, you know, right now, live with intent. And, you know, one of my, um, one of my slogan is step out and shove off, and that means... Stepping out with that, whatever's holding you back, whether it's the the tent and you're stepping out into the night to go do a climb or whether you're shoving off a dock into the North Atlantic Ocean and you have done all the prep at the same time, you're a prairie boy who doesn't know anything about ocean or has an ocean road. So, um, you know, I, I think if anything, if people take away anything from what I do, it's the fact that this this guy from a small town in, in northern Alberta with no special genetics, no special... Um, characteristics can do this stuff so i you know at one point i was reading about your accomplishments and you're reflecting back on them you said you seem to have a a propensity to suffer Mm -hmm. and i thought that was really unique because suffering is such an interesting concept we we look at it as such a negative thing but Mm -hmm. but um do you feel that the average person doesn't suffer enough as weird as that is to say i think i think our whole society now is about comfort Mm. 
if I were to uh, go grab sort of an average SUV right now or a van and we opened the car or the cockpit, sorry, if we opened the, went into the, into the vehicle and looked, it's got touchscreen this and a mouse here and you can order your skip the dishes off the dash and we, everything's at our fingertips. We can buy our groceries and never leave the house and they show up 24 hours later at our front step. Um, auto car starters where people never go outside and um, they just start the car and jump in and they complain about the weather. Mm-hmm. I think there's too much comfort. I think uh, I think we need to stress ourselves a little bit more for sure. I mean a lot more. Physically stress ourselves and, and challenge ourselves. Um, and and one of the biggest uh, culprits is, is our is social media, our phones. Because... Um, when you look at, for example, uh, me on Instagram, you see outcomes, you see results, you see, uh, you know, this a beautiful picture of a guy riding down a, an Arctic highway or a drone shot or me summiting a, a high mountain or me in the middle of the ocean with my shirt off rowing over big waves. You see outcomes, but you don't see the process that went up to that mm-hmm. and the process that was involved in that outcome and that final Instagram filtered, perfectly shot photo was years and years of hard work, suffering, mistakes, losing fingers, um, um, uh, losing friends. And and we have to realize that that when you live in a world where social media all, always shows you outcomes and perfection, you don't realize that there's a lot of hard work, a lot of discomfort um, behind that. And I think it's important that people realize that, that you can't, you can't trust that as being the whole story. So. It, it's really hard to... To determine for some people whether they're authentic on social media or not. I mean, mm-hmm. you, there's no question, obviously, it's authenticity. You just look at your track record and, and it's very proven. But I always wonder, like, you know, there's a lot of people who will go out and, and hike and take these beautiful pictures on top of a mountain and, and they get they get um, accused of just doing it for the photo. Mm-hmm. And in one sense, it's like, okay, you're right, you should love the process and enjoy mm-hmm. that and be doing it for yourself. But in another sense, does the end slightly justify the means in that sense? Like if it weren't for that photo, you wouldn't have gone out and done it yet. You still yeah. went out and did it. Maybe for not the exact right intent, mm-hmm. but who's to determine if that's right or wrong? Yeah. I don't know if I'm making a, a judgment on, on that uh, for sure. But um, the only thing that I could sort of equate that to in my experience is that these, these guys who are, are these guys and girls who are doing the seven summits uh, what I experienced in Antarctica, for example, and I've experienced this in other the, sort of the big mountain base camps around the world, is um, these peak baggers. So there was, uh, you know, climbers down there. There's no names required or countries where they're from. But they were down in Antarctica. They were going to fly to the base of the mountain. They are going to go up Vincent, ski down, get a flight, go to Argentina, and then climb the highest mountain in uh, South America, Aconcagua, via the normal route. Um, and get helicoptered in the base camp so they don't have to hike in, mm-hmm. uh, climb it, bag it, and then you know get home for a month, take more time off from their job in Silicon Valley, and then go to El- Elbrus, the highest mountain in uh, Europe and Russia, and climb that. And it was all it was all scheduled to within an inch of their lives, and it involved no approaches, and involved helicoptering in, bagging the peak. Mm. And I am so dead set against that. I, for me. And it's, it's cliche, but for me, the entire climb is the journey. It's mm-hmm. the, I mean, if, if you think about helicoptering into the highest mountain in Australasia, Papua Province, Indonesia, I walked in, it took me seven days, mud, um, roots and rocks and crossing rivers and cold and hot and raining and 
insects and I, I loved it because I felt like I earned it. But mm -hmm. then you get to base camp and a helicopter lands and somebody <laughs> walks out and they're totally clean and they're wearing khakis. And <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I, think you, I think you lose so much if you don't get the full experience. Do I you mean, talk to those guys when you see them? Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. Was, one guy was asking me um, my opinion about him just flying into base camp. I said, dude, not me. Wrong guy to ask. I love the hike in. I, I remember that hike. It's one of the, like, it's super special mm. and by yourself and you're out in the sort of in the high Andes in Argentina and it's dry and dusty and you're crossing rivers and, mm -hmm. and it's you know it's like anything if you if you struggle for it it's a lot sweeter and and the best things in life you got to work for them for yeah. sure and I mean obviously you're somebody who's lived that and you know it so so you understand a lot of people won't realize that they'll go through life just begging the summit so to speak and just mm -hmm. checking the boxes yeah. and and I think you know, as much as you want to speak out and say, hey, you're not doing it the right way, like, who are you to say that, yeah, right? It's, you, just, you know, you got to just, just kind of stay in your own lane and do your own thing. It's just a personal thought. And, um, and, and, and you could, that line that I'm drawing, this this ethical line could go, you could, you know, uh, I remember when I summited Everest, I was wearing uh, battery heated socks while well, they worked for the first uh, couple of hours and then they didn't work at all. <laughs> Actually, wasn't that's not true. They're battery heated foot uh, footbeds, right. not socks. And they didn't really work, but so that's cheating in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, you did can you just think of that as a sign when they stopped working? You're like, I shouldn't have used them in the first place. Well, no, I mean, I just remember that I, I did an interview from Kamandu, the Globe and Mail, and somebody in the comment section said, "Well, you know, if oxygen is cheating, uh, he had electric footbeds. I mean, isn't that cheating too? I didn't use oxygen, but he was saying, isn't that cheating too? Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a certain line, right? Mm -hmm. I guess if I wore only uh, natural products, wool and animal skins, and you know, didn't touch the fixed lines, and that's the that's the purest way to do it, right? Yeah. So there's there's always a, an, an extra level you could go to. So there's no like agreed upon industry standard of like what is cheating and what's not. Mm -hmm. It's it's everyone's kind of. Oh yeah, there is. Oh, yeah, is we, there? we have rules that are generally unwritten. Just like I don't know if you're familiar with the Tour de France, the cycling rules, but there are all kinds of unwritten rules, right? That are very difficult to to explain. But mm -hmm. yeah, we have we have rules for sure. Yeah. So are you still the only Canadian to have done that without oxygen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What and you mentioned earlier that there's there's just a genetic predisposition to being able to do that mm -hmm. to operate at high altitudes. Did you find that out before you got to Everest? No, no. I had, uh, I mean, I was having a really strong expedition. I trained super hard. I trained hard in Tibet while I was in Tibet. Um, even at base camp, I'd go off in the distance. I'd be doing push-ups and sit-ups, and I'd be going up all the local peaks. And all the local peaks around there are higher than the highest mountain in North America. I mean, this is high country. Right. Um, and I was feeling super strong um, to the point that my uh, Western teammates would be betting other teams that I'd beat their Sherpas up to camp when we left at the same time. And that was Sherpas. Yeah. So I was just, uh, you know, everything was just clicking. It was like, you know, you get that flow, you're an athlete where you mm -hmm. flow. Mm -hmm. I was just flowing. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, when I left high camp, I was very confident, but I still knew that I was stepping out into the hardest physiological night of my life for sure. I knew mm -hmm. that stuff was going to happen um and uh all it takes is a blood vessel blown in your eye your head um and you're dead right so mm -hmm. um you know I, I knew i was stepping out i felt like i was doing a spacewalk i knew i had to get back to that tent yeah i can imagine that feeling of isolation in some of these trips is just tremendous like if you decide you need to pull the chute like 
you're days away minimum mm-hmm. in some cases of getting yeah. anywhere like yeah. what really stuck to me is when you're you're describing the cross-country skiing you just recently did in mm-hmm. December and you said it was like so snowy that it was like swimming in a cold glass of milk yeah and like yeah. couldn't see anything that's yeah. Like that, I don't understand how that's not so overwhelming that you just like freeze up. I guess because you have. But to you know what? It, if you haven't experienced something, I find this interesting. People seem to always be amazed by. Uh, I'm not saying by me, but by by these types of stories, mm-hmm. and that is that if you stop and pause for a second, that there's seven and a half billion of us, and we live in every single environment, every single geography, every single uh, barely livable space on Earth. We can suffer. We can handle it. I mean. Sure, I'm a big roughy tufty adventurer who rode across the ocean alone. But at the same time, there were—I always say this—there were Syrian women and Libyan women that were jumping in little rubber rafts and floating across the Mediterranean to Italy and, right. and Greece, and mm-hmm. with their kids. So, I mean, if you're prepared for, it, you've got the right equipment. It's not that big a deal. But people have to realize that, you know, with all due respect to all of our fellow. Uh, 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 human beings we are co- the cockroaches of the world we can do like we live <laughs> everywhere yeah. so we can adapt and people don't realize that and right now i mean if i i just put my jacket on we came down here but um when you're prepared for something when your mindset is such i mean getting on a bike at minus 40 and pedaling is not that bad if you're dressed for it right yeah. but but if, if if you and i had to go catch a bus right now at minus 40 yeah i'd be freezing yeah right yeah so the mindset you, is the huge. mindset is huge what, Huge. In advance of these trips, like, do you have uh, like a mental, other than like your your practical like mm-hmm. physical checklist of, of gear and mm-hmm. food and stuff? Do you have a mental checklist? Do you have a way of sort of psyching yourself up and 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 focusing on on the objective? Yeah, probably. But I, I think I get that way back. Like I get that way back early in the process. Mm. So right now I'm I'm putting together a trip. It's I I I'm not gonna talk about it yet because it's so early but you know i've already you already start to visualize you can visualize the terrain you can visualize the feeling as you summon in this case it's a mountain you can you know you can uh, you through experience i know what it's going to be like Mm -hmm. um and uh that really helps but i don't i've never really pondered if i have any type of mindset training uh, inadvertently that i do or subconsciously i think um i think i've got a certain level of confidence from being able to do this Mm -hmm. And I think that really helps. I've got a lot of experience, and experience comes from failures. Experience comes from mistakes, right? Yeah. So I think I can, um, I, you know, I, I'm confident in that sense. I don't, I don't go out there thinking I'm always going to get it done. But you know, if I've done the training and I've done the preparation, and the equipment holds up, there's really no reason that you shouldn't be able to. And the weather, I mean, depending on what you're doing. Right. Yeah. You're 50 now. Has have you noticed the body declining at all? Uh, no, I just noticed I train harder now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, there's that interesting sort of like reverse graph of like experience. You get better yeah. and better with experience, but you know the body goes up and then it comes back down. So yeah. I, I, I'm interested where that cross section is. Like you know, I, I think it starts. Uh, I think for me as an outdoor, actually this isn't true. As an outdoor athlete, especially if you're doing like Himalayan stuff and you know big expeditions i think you're sort of in your prime and your early to mid 40s mm-hmm. you've got that experience if you've been training your whole life yeah if you if you're not you're, you're you know it doesn't apply but if you've been you know actively involved in these type of pursuits your whole life um then um your experience level and your fitness and your ability to suffer and your ability to be smart about your training all coincide mm-hmm sort of like the Chris Chelios uh, sweet spot right <laughs> and then well he was, which he, was in for, which, he, which he was in for like nine years <laughs> and then uh, yeah at, uh, at 50 the only thing it does 
is that first of all, I can't believe I'm over 40 because I remember turning 40 going, how the hell did this happen? Right. And then 10 years later, now I'm 50. And you just go, this is the first time in my life where I go, maybe I got to do even more shit and get it done quicker because I know that there's a, you know, the time is ticking. Right. right. And I don't know how hard you can go as hard as I'm going at 60 or 65. Yeah. And so... Yeah, that, but that's always there. That pressure is always hanging over me. So it's, it always has. And my mom remembers me turning eight and crying because I didn't want to get any older. So <laughs> Maybe the smart way to approach it is tackle all the hardest stuff now. And then as the body declines, you can tackle like this yeah, stuff that you so. didn't cross off the list on the way I just out, hope right? I can. I just hope I have some stuff that's not too hard in the future. I got to think about that. <laughs> yeah, like you, hard stuff. yeah, like you must have like... Like, are you going to start free climbing next? You know, like... I don't have enough fingers. <laughs> Sorry, you, you lost three in Everest? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. And did you know right away that they were, they uh, were there gone? There three hours at a high camp. They were yeah. frozen. And then once they're frozen, there's nothing you can do about it. So then I got back to Calgary and had them amputated. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just, it's a mistake. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's one thing I also like to talk about is the fact that people go, oh, it must have been so cold. I'm like, listen, I grew up in Edmonton. <laughs> I bet you it was minus 25 or minus 27 on Summit Day, which mm -hmm. is not even a cold day here, really. When I grew up, we had a lot of cold days in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. We line up for the barn, our jean jackets at minus 27. And um, your dad was probably lined up at some of the same bars. Yeah, I was going to say, the, girl, the girls here in skirts, too, That's right. in high heels. So. Yeah, and acid wash. Yeah, but, tough um, breed so, out here. So for a lot, of, uh, a lot of foreigners on the mountain, they thought it was so cold. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But I had... Um, what's called a jumar and it's an ascender it slides up the rope and doesn't slide back mm -hmm. and I, it had a small opening in it and i had big down filled himalayan mitts on and and it wasn't made for it wasn't made for these big mitts so when i shoved my hand through the opening it compressed the down around my right hand around my fingers mm -hmm. so it was a it was a pilot error once again i froze mm -hmm. my fingers had the wrong gear that's unbelievable. So not because it was cold. Right. So, yeah, because I was going to ask, why would three have only frozen, not the other? Because of the way seven. you're gripping the... Yeah. You know, so that you're, makes you're probably gripping sense. it like this the whole time. And, mm -hmm. yeah. in, all these, in all these adventures and these, these monumental challenges, what percentage would you allocate to mental versus physical for you? Ooh, I don't know. It's a tough one. Uh, you know, most of it's mental for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like you've got to have the training there. You've got to be yeah. prepared. But if you're fully prepared, then, then you know, because we we know that the body's capable of so much more mm -hmm. than we give it credit for, right? Mm -hmm. And you push to the extreme of that, and not many people have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mental mental's tough. I mean, it's that old thing we talked about, touched on earlier that you know, unzipping the tents, stepping out is can be really tough. Um, you're behind uh, half a millimeter of nylon or Gore-Tex or Pertex, and um, it's incredible what a difference that makes. You get some sunshine through there, even at minus 40, and you can have, you can just be down to like a, a wool undershirt, mm -hmm. and you've got a sleeping bag in there, you got your stove, you got water, you got your sat phone, you got your GPS, you're safe, and there's, you know, there's really no threat. But to unzip that tent and go through that half a millimeter of fabric, um, it can take a lot, and I've seen, I've seen people who couldn't do it, or they've made up an excuse and they've gone back down. Um, so yeah, pulling down that zipper, pulling up that zipper, depending on your tent model, is um, mentally can be extremely tough. And then for me, you know, one of the hardest things uh, when it comes to my outdoor stuff was shoving off the dock in Halifax. That was really outside my comfort zone. When I sat there and thought I had it came out to five thousand five hundred kilometers of of ocean, 
you know, by myself out there, big storms in the North Atlantic, ships almost running me over. I knew this was all going to happen, and to shove off that dock, yeah, it was. I, I I can still remember very clearly that feeling. Just there was two guys that helped me. They shoved off the dock. And there's a video of me putting the oar in the water for the first oar stroke to cross. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was mentally it was tough, and it's um, but it's like anything. Once you start, you get that mission momentum going, and you start. But it's, man, it's hard to start sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, just to see land slowly disappear, disappear over the horizon. Yeah, and it and takes know. a couple of days for it to disappear. <laughs> yeah. And well, that must have been tough after two days, still seeing where you just came from and knowing you got way farther yeah, than that. Seeing the lights the of Canada end. disappear and and uh, you know you're in for a couple of hard months at sea. Yeah, that, that that's tough. But I think anything you start can be difficult. I mean, I'm just like anybody else. I wake up in the morning at 5 a.m. to go to the gym, and I'm like, oh, you start to make up these excuses. Like, I'll do it later. I'll do it. But once you get going, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know, getting on your bike early morning to ride your bike to work at, you know, minus 20, it's it's tough. But once you get going, I think that's the most difficult thing is, is getting started. And once you get started, then mm-hmm. you roll with it. The momentum builds up, and you just deal with things as they come along, and you know, one th- one thing I've used since I've read Chris Hatfield's book, An Astronaut's God to Life on Earth, is every time you have a problem, you just work the problem. Just work it. Right. So when I was up north just recently, my last little trip, and I did that 1,200K bike ride, you know, I was going through mud. The mud was freezing at night, and I had to chip it off like it was like concrete on the bike. And I had a flat tire, like covered in mud, frozen to the bike. I couldn't even get the tire off. Everything was just a disaster. And I just kind of laughed and said, just work the problem. you right. got to figure it out. You don't have a choice. Yeah. So there's no use getting mad and kicking your bike and... Mm-hmm moaning and bitching about it just work the problem and i think that's um really important that you just as as challenges um confront you in life you just work it you just don't sit there whinge and moan about it figure it out keep moving forward yeah and and to try and not be in a rush because Mm -hmm. it seems like when you're when you're pressured to to complete something on on time or 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 if you're just trying to get through as fast as possible that's when you kind of that's when you struggle the most. You're just like, you start thinking like, oh, I'm going to be late. You see that in a cockpit all and... the time. I mean, that's my bread and butter. I mean, slow is efficient, efficient is fast, yeah. right? Right. And uh, I can see like just today uh, during uh, the simulator session, I was rushing through a checklist that I've done. I mean, I've been an airline pod forever. And um, I reconfigured one switch wrong. It didn't have any consequences, but it was just something that bugs me because I didn't do it right because mm-hmm. I was rushing because mm-hmm. I knew the system so well, I could just flick through it. And um, you can really see it if you want to see how distractions can get people. You watch an airline crew when they're dealing with emergencies and other things are coming up. And you just have to learn how to prioritize and what to deal with first and just keep working the the biggest problem. Right. And then just like Hatfield says in his book, you're always thinking, what can kill me next? And you're just <laughs> trying to avoid that the right. whole time. Right. So. Yeah, it make, makes total sense. Um, but those are hard things to to understand or comprehend or until practice you've lived until it. you've lived yeah, it you right? can read it you can it watch back it to the struggle yeah. it's you know constantly putting yourself through challenges through struggling prepares you for what the unknown yeah. thing that happens next is right and 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 it's it's been it's been really um um valuable to me and the family um uh, since we lost our son because that's something that is it's so incredibly uh painful and even difficult to talk about but at the same time the way we dealt with it is we were very deliberate it was um you know i sat for 15 minutes after i got the call from the rcmp before i tell my wife and i just started running a checklist okay what do i got to do how are we going to do this like and you just 
uh, we just sort of stuck to a plan and we 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 just we with intent said we're going to come out of this healthy we'll do whatever we we'll, we need to do to come out of this healthy as a family and as a couple and we've done it touch wood um, but um, you can use the lessons that you've learned in in aviation or in the outdoors and in my case I've combined them both and I've used it to um, to avoid a you know a, a calamity after a calamity mm-hmm. so I think now, that's helped now he passed away canoeing in the Northwest Territories yep. right at Norman Wells a town I just rode my bike to right you're delivering a check there yep. for, for search and rescue yep. services because they hadn't they weren't prepared when, when he yep. went on that trip it, it wouldn't have mattered but yeah right. he, it would, there, there's nothing they could have done anyways but yeah they didn't have a search and rescue group there so. do you think had it not been for if you, you hadn't been so prepared as an outdoorsman and as a pilot do you think your personality would have led you to that prepared checklist i don't know because you never uh you just you never know how you're going to deal with that stuff you know as a parent i'm assuming you don't have kids Uh, correct as a parent um your biggest fear in life is not you getting cancer you losing your house you losing your job it's something happening to your kid yeah and it always happens to somebody else right Mm. it's always somebody else's kid it's never you and i've had i've had i've had one friend who's lost his his daughter in a car accident and i just you know, I, I couldn't even, I can't even, well, now I can't. I couldn't even imagine what it was like until it happens. And there's nothing, there's nothing that's even comparable, nothing. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't know. And I, you know, it just, you, you deal with it. You have to deal with it. Life has to go on. We have two other kids. and mm-hmm. um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's just as tragic and horrendous and terrifying and sad and um, as you can possibly imagine so it's um yeah it's it's a constant theme all the time for us mm-hmm. we don't um we don't avoid it we talk about richard often all, mm-hmm. all the time and uh, and i and I, I don't hesitate to talk about it i think it's important so i think i think to really process and get through any situation in life you have to feel those emotions you yeah. have to talk about it and if you just ignore it and hide it and, and put mm-hmm. it in a closet it becomes such a such a monstrosity of an issue mm-hmm. um that can consume you and mm-hmm. i know you you've approached the situation different than a lot of people would in that you know it hasn't stopped you in any of your adventures you've mm-hmm. gone out and I think I need them even more now yeah, yeah. I, which is super interesting to me because a lot of people that would that would kind of ixnay it that would mm-hmm. put, especially going on the water yeah um, going out and and rowing the ocean that was a that was a bit of a, uh, that further complicated things obviously with me and my wife because mm-hmm. she didn't want me on the water and, of course and uh, you know uh, looking back on that uh, ocean row, which was sort of the that was an ex expedition, I sort of a serious expedition I did after Richard died, and it was um, um, it was uh, when I look back on it now, it's the only expedition I've done where if you think about it, you're sitting in a rowing boat and you're always facing the past, you're always looking at where you came from, you're never looking forward right. in a rowboat. So I went across that entire Atlantic Ocean looking backwards. And, you know, I looked backwards uh, figuratively and literally looking back at, you know, dealing with the loss of uh, Richard. And, and uh, you, you know, when you're, when you're in a situation like that, in a situation that's, you know, fairly high risk, I guess, rowing a, a solo ocean rowboat, you know, you question what you're doing and you look back at your family. And at the same time, though, you're still moving forward. So, you know, you read a lot about, uh, you know, these... Uh, uh, motivational posters about never looking back and you know the the futures in front of you or the races ahead of you and I don't think there's anything wrong with looking back as long as you don't let it you know 
admire you or keep you stuck. Mm-hmm. You can still look back and still keep moving forward for sure. So of course, I mean yeah. that's that's why we have history, you know, yeah. to teach us and remind us of the lessons of the past. And and as long as you take all the positive lessons and and from the negative situations mm-hmm. and move forward with that, yeah. and yeah. I think that's the most valuable way to do it. Yeah. That um, that ocean row, I mean, it took you 53 days, yep. and that was the quickest that anyone's ever done that. From uh, mainland North America to mainland Europe, yeah. yeah. There was a guy who went the year after me who <laughs> was funny. He was all over the all over the news and New York Times and everything, and he was, you know, and they said that he beat my record of 53 days. But mm-hmm. he went from Newfoundland to the UK, which are island to island. He was 700 nautical miles shorter, so. <laughs> My wife said, you got to say something. I said, well, I don't care. I'm not going to say anything. But yeah, yeah, we crossed the same ocean, Mm -hmm. but island to island Mm -hmm. versus mainland to mainland. Do you you subscribe to the the notion that, you know, you should really tackle the things that you're afraid of the most? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you you strike me as a guy who really couldn't live with yourself if you didn't do that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like, I like, uh, I like that. I mean, yeah. And I like, I like proving that. A lot of things are exaggerated in life. I remember when I went to climb Denali, North America's highest peak. The book that I read about it was just so terrifying. I really thought I was going to get the chop when I went mm-hmm. there. I went solo, and it wasn't nearly as bad as what the book said. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, uh, when was it? 2013, I guess. I went to Iraq, and I climbed the highest mountain in Iraq and skied down it. And, you know, same thing. People are like, you can't go. You're going to die. You never get in there. Like, no, you're going to And mm-hmm. you know what? And I've been to Iran climbing too, and um, I I really think that people, uh, this is what I don't like to do is exaggerate. And I think sometimes I'm faulted for that because people think it's modesty, but I'm just being honest. A lot of these things aren't that hard. Right. You just have to be there and do it. Yeah. You don't don't need any special powers to do this stuff. The hardest choice to me seems like it would be making the decision to do it. Yeah. And once you once you decide, it's like anything in life. If you want it, just figure and out what so it is. So many people tell you not to do it. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, my poor mom. But uh, yeah, <laughs> everybody tells you not to do these yeah. things. You like it's good, and then you come back and you've had the trip of your lifetime. So has has, has there been anything that you've conceived of or, or been aware of in terms of a, an expedition that you've been you haven't tackled yet mm-hmm. because it's too dangerous or I just or, can't get in I'm trying to cross the largest sand desert in the world called the Rubel Khali the empty quarter mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia but as you know Saudi Arabia is fighting with Yemen right now right and this area borders Yemen and you just can't get in there it's just it's closed to anybody okay. so, 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 so that's just uh, that's outside circumstances there's yeah. been nothing that you yourself have been too afraid to tackle this point oh well i'll let you know if i think of something that i want to do that i'm not saying that i'm super courageous or brave at all but just the stuff i've done i've i guess what i do is i bite off i think what i can handle so i haven't i haven't uh you know focus on something yet where i'm you know laying in my room at night sucking my thumb worried about it i don't (laughs) think in a way i don't think i would yeah like i I, i'm focusing on something that i think i can handle right which might be a little bit broader than some people because of my experiences right so, right yeah um the expectations of, of of something that you're about to encounter must be huge i mean like you said going you know these people wrote about this denali summit that mm-hmm. was you thought it was going to be way harder than it was mm-hmm. um is that always the case or have you ever come across a case where someone's really undersold something and you get to it and you go, yeah you, i mean you said that was easy yeah i guess so but i i I tend to think that what I've read 
generally is that Canadians generally, I think it's because of an innate modesty that we have, kind of tell it like it is. Mm. And I don't want to stereotype all Americans at all, but it seems to me that there's something in the culture, something in the, in the I don't know, maybe it's the zeitgeist there where they tend to, um, at least in the books I've read, tend to exaggerate sometimes. And the mm-hmm. Brits are usually uh, pretty good. Some of their polar stuff is, um, I would say, uh, some of their more modern polar stuff is exaggerated mm-hmm. in some senses. But that could be for, because of the fact they don't live in a cold country. Right. Right. So um, somebody uh, writing a paragraph of, about uh, minus 30 being really cold and windy would not make sense to somebody from Edmonton. Right. But somebody from from Essex would think that's hell on earth. Yeah, So you know exactly. what I mean? It's all relative. Yeah. So it depends what you're talking about, I guess. Yeah, we were just in northern England and it was like... 11 degrees and raining and they're like oh it's cold here just yeah. be prepared yeah. i'm like we're coming from Edmonton. it's currently minus 25 they're like oh you'll yeah. be fine then. and we had a cold winter yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who are so like when you get to this level of accomplishment that you are in terms of of tackling these these things um who are guys that you look to or girls mm-hmm. um you know for for motivation are, are there other people out there that you really admire sort of or are you kind of at the top of your own list in terms of no, accomplishments no, no not at all I, I i've got imposter syndrome all the time mm. every time i knock off one of these things and yeah. i do it i'm like uh how did i do this or what am i doing here right you know i was at a calgary opera had a uh, an everest or there's an everest opera that came to calgary and i was on a panel with the first canadian climb everest laurie screslet the first north american woman uh, sharon brown uh, wood to, to climb everest and me and i was like what are what am i doing with these people how did i get here like yeah when the curtain goes up, sometimes I'm I'm still that boy from Warrenville, so yeah. I don't think that at all. But um, you you know it's going to sound crazy, but um, I I've got a lot of admiration for my wife. What she's uh, what she does. She's an entrepreneur. She's got multiple businesses. Um, she owns a murder mystery company. She's got uh, two big daycare centers. She's building a third. She's been able to. Um, um, come out healthy after losing a child, which is there's nothing worse that a woman can go through, and still raise two kids, and we have a beautiful house. So I, you know, I, I, she, if she ever listens to this, she's gonna be a little surprised. But I really uh, admire her and look up to her for, yeah. for that. So, um, so that's one person. When it comes to sort of the um, uh, the adventure world, I mean. Uh, there's a, a very well-known in my world uh, Norwegian adventurer called Borge Usland. He's mm-hmm. sort of like the um, he'd be like the Wayne Gretzky of uh, of of Arctic stuff mm-hmm. and, and Antarctic stuff. And he's still going strong, and he's in his late fifties. Maybe he's sixty now. Um, you know, uh, Pat Morrow I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Pat Morrow, the, the only, or the first person and the first Canadian ever climbed the Seven Summits. Mm-hmm. So I really look up to him. Yeah, there's there's all kinds in, in that in that in that realm for sure. Yeah, or there, yeah. do you see people do things and you're like, oh, I bet you I could do that too. Or oh I, yeah, I, I all could, the time I could do that, but I could take it a step farther because of that. Because yeah. of, as I'm pointing at a phone for people listening. Obviously, <laughs> but because of because of that, you can see what's going on yeah. and you go, oh man. Because what you're doing is is you're always thinking of the next. I call them projects. You're just thinking about the next project, yeah. and you always want to improve and get bigger and better, right? Yeah, you just want to you just want to do stuff that that is. Uh, I like doing different stuff, going to different places, yeah. and I don't want to just be a mountaineer. I don't want to just be an right. ocean warrior. I don't want to just be an endurance athlete. I like I like the whole. 
I like the whole thing. And, um, you know, one of my focuses now is my 17-year-old boy. He's getting his pilot's license. He's about to graduate from high school. And I've got a, a lot of adventures I want to do with him. And I want to make sure I set him off on the aviation thing as safe and as professionally as possible. So mm-hmm. that's a project in itself, right? Yeah. With, a, with you know, with all my focus on it. So, so is he is he going to start coming on trips with you more and more now that he's yeah, almost I done mean, high school? And- yeah, he is done high school this June. So, uh, yeah, we, we do uh, ski mountaineering trips. Mm-hmm. We've gone climbing together. You know, him and I have, and, our, and his older sister, we summited Fuji in the winter and skied down it. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. Well, little stuff like that. And, That's you know, wild. We've canoed in the Arctic. We've yeah. ridden, you know, we've ridden our bikes to Jasper from uh, Calgary. We've ridden, you know, we've done bike tours mm-hmm. and yeah, there's all kinds of stuff um, to do. You said your wife struggled with the rowing trip. How do your kids um, deal with you going oh, they're on, funny. These, tri- on yeah. these trips? I've got a good video of my son testing the boat in England, and, <laughs> and the guy who built the boat is interviewing him. And uh, he says, so what does your dad think about, or what do you think about your dad rowing across the Atlantic? And Eric says, uh, it's kind of random. He just came downstairs uh, one, no, he, it's kind of random since he doesn't actually row. <laughs> he just came downstairs one day and said, I think I'm going to row across the Atlantic. And the guy starts laughing. So it's like, it, it would be like you growing up with an NHL um, father is mm-hmm. that, that's not that unusual for right, you. Right, just dad being dad, right? Just dad. So they don't, I mean... It doesn't even phase them. They yeah. don't. They, they don't even. It doesn't even register. I say, "Hey, I'm going to Antarctica for two months," and they're like, "Oh, cool. Sounds like fun, Dad. Is there any sketchy parts?" And that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Tell us the worst case yeah. scenario, and then everything else is good. Yeah, right? like I, that bike ride in the Arctic. Where are you going? I'm, I'm going to ride my bike from Yellowknife to Norman. Oh, okay. Well, sounds cool. Have fun. Like they don't even know. Yeah, <laughs> they've never known anything else, right? And then along the way, like you've got sat phones. So do you call them every few days, or, or do you reserve in that Antarctica? For, well, no, just in, in the more isolated places mm, that you go to. You know, I I, I will I will uh, very rarely ever call, but it, you you can satellite text. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how's it going? Did you fly today? Yeah. How was school? Yeah. Uh, you know, talk to my wife, whatever. But it's funny when you think that you know being in a family where your dad's out on these strange trips or your husband's out on these strange trips that the whole focus would be like watching my GPS position and you know what I don't think I think it's just like I've gone to work and they don't yeah. even know where I am I'll call them like, hey I made it and, I mean I remember once coming back from Iran I was climbing in Iran and I got back to Frankfurt or London and I called my wife and I said hey I made it she goes oh good and I could tell that she didn't know where I was Yeah. and I said you don't know where I was <laughs> she goes yes I do I said really what continent yeah. and there's a big long pause and she goes Africa I said no I was not in Africa <laughs> one more chance she had no idea yeah. I said so if I would have gone missing in Iran what would you tell foreign affairs yeah. she goes I don't know you made it Check his social media. Yeah. Find no, out this where is before is. social media. So. <laughs> do they ever bust your balls? Like, hey, how come you didn't do it quicker? What took you oh, so long? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, uh, so I remember like when I was a, did a lot of adventure racing, if I wasn't in first or second, my wife would be like, what's going on? Are yeah. you injured? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she pushes me hard. Have you ever heard of a guy named Ross Edgley from the UK? Uh, no, remind me what he... So he uh, started off as a fitness guy and um, over the last few years have been doing a bunch of insane challenges. So he did a marathon with a Mini Cooper strapped or roped to his back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard him interviewed. Yeah, he's yeah. a British guy and super charming, but it does these unbelievable Oh, the things. swimmer. He, yes, yes, so he swam yeah. around Great Britain. Yeah, I know the guy. Yeah. 157 days. Yeah, jellyfish I, and <laughs> freezing cold and yeah, that's... I'm not into swimming. 
Yeah, but I mean, you, like you rode for fifty three days straight. I mean, it's a lot easier. <laughs> I, I saw a lot of similarities there. And what what he you said you got fitter as you went along. What's interesting about him is that he had all these people telling him with your build, like, like you you're not going to be able to swim this long. And yeah. he just said, look, it's it's pure science, right? Yeah, like, I've if heard, I'm yeah. carrying all this weight on me, it's it's a zero impact sport. Yeah, and um, plus and the I'm insulation from being chubby because yeah. he's chubby. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I don't know that he's chubby. I think it's all muscle. <laughs> but but he's not super lean. Like yeah. he's a big guy, like big all around. Yeah. And um, I don't think he lost that much weight on the on the swim if I remember right. Yeah, like his shoulders and his upper body got bigger and then his legs he said yeah. just were crushed cuz he didn't touch land for 157 days. Ugh. He get he he had he cycled 6 hours swimming, 6 hours sleeping and and eating. Right, Jeez. and sometimes he'd be eating in the water like That's a banana right. or yeah. whatever. That's but, right. But uh, he also did. He climbed a rope the height of Everest. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. he did a what's called a triathlon, so a full Olympic-sized triathlon with a hundred-pound tree on his back. Like this is a guy that I look at, and I'm like, and similar to you, I look at it and I'm like, geez, these guys are doing amazing things, and it, it, you know, what makes me want to do more mm-hmm. things. So, yeah. you know, that was a big reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Great. and 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 kind of draw that line from like top performers to like who they are as a person and see like yes you're just regular guys yeah. you just decide to do a lot crazier things than the I was Tim Hortons you wouldn't look twice <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly I mean, get, I mean you, having said that though it's good that you're doing this stuff I mean you're taking a chance by doing a podcast I mean um, and the good thing about what you're doing is you're you know I can inspire people with my with my speaking gigs and with my social media maybe and interviews and TV stuff but you can also take us and drill right down and then share with people. Mm-hmm. And that's important because maybe out of the people that listen to this, one person might make a change. They might step out of their comfort zone. They may mm-hmm. shove off from whatever's holding them back. They may eat healthier. They may start getting fit. Yeah. So that's huge. It's a huge impact. Absolutely. And I, out of all the things you said to me, I think what resonates the most is is that these things aren't hard. What's hard is making the decision, mm-hmm. the commitment to do them, right? Yeah. I think that's so important because so many people go through life never picking a target. They yeah. just, they're, they're working with the ebbs and flows of the river and it's just the opportunities that come to them, they take. And it's never like live direct and intentionally. Yeah, draw a straight line, live with intent. Mm-hmm. Live with intent. Pick something that you want to do and then, you know, it sounds cliche and it's people have heard this a thousand times. If you wake up in the morning, you write stuff down. I mean, you know what a good day is for you. Mm. So it's probably something healthy to eat in the morning, a good coffee, maybe a workout, some work on your podcast stuff, book a guest. And then, uh, you know, have a nice meal with your girlfriend and a, and a glass of wine at night. You know what a good day is. Mm. So it, I know what a good day is for me, which is very similar, actually. But um, if we know what a good day is, then wake up in the morning and write that down, what you're going to do. Yeah. And I find if I write something down, I stick to it. So if I say I'm fasting till, th- uh, till you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, if mm. I write it down, I'll do it. Where if I don't... Yeah. I'm eating out noon. Hundred percent. Well, it it holds you. A it holds you accountable. Mm-hmm. B it, it opens up your mental bandwidth because you're no longer thinking and holding all these yeah. things in your head. You put them down and you know you can stop thinking about them. The reminders in my phone is huge for me for oh, that yeah, as well. Huge. If you've got things to do, don't try and remember it because the human brain, Absolutely. the human memory is terrible. It's yeah. a terrible. Yeah feature so just put it in your phone it's way better at remembering and then and then you're free to live in the moment because you know all the important how many things times have you saved you. your butt because of that thing going ding yeah. you're like oh my god i gotta phone somebody yeah, yeah. i've learned that over the years so I, I put everything in my calendar and my notes mm-hmm. now and it yeah it's it's huge and the odd time i'm like oh i'll remember this mm-hmm. i I'll inevitably screw no, it up no no right? same thing and there's tricks i mean 
That's one of the tricks. I mean, it's the same thing when you're in the cockpit of an airplane. You have a million things you need to remember. Mm. And we have little things we might do. We might take over the speed card and st- stick it between the thrust levers. We may we may turn on a caution light, a certain light in the cockpit that shouldn't be on. And when you see it, you go, why is that on? And like, you have to do that. Yeah. And, you, and, and life can be far more complex sometimes in a cockpit. So. Mm-hmm. Use all the tricks. We're all weak and we're primates. we got to figure out this stuff. Yep. Yeah, we're just getting through life. Well, <clears throat> Laval, I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thanks for Thanks so me. much. This was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully after your next big adventure, I'd love to have you back on yeah, and, and, sure. and talk about it. Maybe we'll get a little more technical in, in, yeah. uh, in our speak here. But, and I'll do some research as well in terms of that kind of world. But uh, tell people where they can follow along and learn more about you, your sure. social media. Yeah. So uh, my website is just LavalleStGermain.com. So that's just L-A-V-A-L-S-T-G-E-R-M-A-I-N at, uh, uh, dot com. And then uh, Twitter and Instagram, at uh, LavalleStGermain, all one word and no period after the T. Perfect. And I'll put the links to all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. Awesome thanks to meet you. Yeah. Take thanks. care. Have a thanks good drive back to Cowtown. Yeah, thanks. Hey everyone, me again. Huge thanks for listening, and I'd love to hear what you thought of that episode. Also, Laval told me that he's considering doing his own podcast, and I think he absolutely should. I mean, the guy has endless heart-stopping stories, um, and he's such a beacon of positivity and accomplishment. So let's all put a little social pressure on the guy by following him on Twitter and Instagram and asking him when we can expect the first episode to drop. Uh, One final note for the week, make sure to go check out the Let's Do Coffee podcast hosted by the Maji Center at Nate. Yes, that is the same Ashif Maji who I previously had on the show. The podcast is hosted by Daniel Van Velen and produced by the Maji Center for New Venture and Student Entrepreneurship at Nate. Each episode features an interview with a student entrepreneur or Nate alumnus. They dive into topics that explore their challenges, questions, and fears involved in operating their companies. And like Laval and I discussed, that fear is often what we need to tackle most in our lives. It comes out every two weeks and can be found at nate.ca slash Center. That's M-A-W-J-I Center C-E-N-T-R-E. Anyway, thanks again for listening, guys, and we'll see you back here next week. Bye.